0: Now that the resurrection is in our rearview mirror, that obviously means that we are getting close, can you believe it, to finishing our series in the Gospel of John. So we're gonna spend the next five weeks or so now looking at what John has to say about life after the resurrection of Christ. And hopefully we're gonna get some answers to some key questions. Let me give you three things we'll be touching on today and in the coming weeks. Number one, what can we say about the glorified state of Jesus after the resurrection? What does the Bible tell us about The condition of his body after the resurrection. Number two, what instructions does he give to his followers in these 40 days that he has on the earth before he ascends to heaven? Because whatever instructions he gives, they're going to be pretty important, right? And then finally, very practical one, based on Jesus's uh, concerns and instructions, are we as a church on track with his purposes, or have we wandered off and lost our way? Are we, are we more concerned about things that Jesus doesn't seem to emphasize, or are we focused on his core mission? So let's start this morning by trying to piece together the historical events that come after the discovery of the empty tomb. Each of the four gospel writers give us historical accounts of what we call these post-resurrection appearances, although you could say that they are, each one of them are fairly limited in scope and detail. And, um, and the reason for that is interesting. All four gospel writers seem to indicate that what's most important to them are the details of the Passion Week itself and less about these post-resurrection appearances. And that may seem weird to, to uh, modern-day Western folks like us because we love our apologetics, don't we? right? We love our apologetics. So if was up to us, we might say, well, let's put a little more time into writing about how Jesus proved to the world that he was alive after the crucifixion. That, that might be how we draw it up. But as I've said many times before in this series, we always have to remember that John is writing somewhere between 25 to 30 years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and get this now, more than 50 years after Jesus walked the earth. So the timing on this matters. So this is so important, the folks reading John's gospel at the end of the first century didn't need more proof that Jesus was risen. That was a long-established fact at the time that John was writing. In fact, there were still folks alive at the time John is writing who had seen Jesus alive after the crucifixion, had interacted with him as John had. And of course, his enemies had never been able to produce a body, a dead body that disproved the resurrection. And we know if there had been any evidence that would have contradicted what Jesus's followers were saying, it surely would have come to the surface. If not in the, in the weeks following the resurrection, at least in the months or the years that followed, that evidence would have come to the surface. So if the resurrection had been a conspiracy, and we love our conspiracy theories, right? There's so many of them on the internet. Well, the conspiracy about the resurrection... If it had been a conspiracy and a fraud, 50 years later, when John is writing, there's no way this story would still be alive and circulating. No way. The Christian movement would have been denounced. It would have died off, and John would not be writing anything at all. But instead, as we look at when is John is writing, late 80s, early 90s of the first century, right? What is the condition of the church? Has it died off? Quite the opposite. It is alive. It is flourishing. It is thriving. It is spreading from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. So looking back at this, we we see that the story of the resurrection has some very real historical teeth to it. And that's important for our faith. Amen? So I think we can safely say that when the gospel writers describe these appearances of Jesus after the resurrection, it's less about proving that he was alive and more about what are the theological and practical implications of those stories. And that's what we get to discover as we walk through the ones that John shows us in chapters 20 and 21. So just to get us a historical bent on this, let me give you a chart that describes the appearances, how the gospel writers lay out these appearances after the resurrection. We can start right here. These are all the appearances that happen on that Sunday. Okay. And the ones that yellow there are the ones that John covers the ones that we'll be touching on in our series, starting with Mary Magdalene at the tomb. We saw that two weeks ago. And then these other women who were with her on that morning. Now, the one to Simon Peter alone, we don't have any data on this, but Luke mentions it in passing. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, when he's listing the appearances, he also makes mention of that. And then there's this big one, this man named Cleopas and his companion walking on the road to Emmaus. That's an important one. We'll come back to that in just a moment. And then that last one on the screen there, you see disciples in a locked room minus Thomas. That is the subject of the passage we're covering this morning. So all these things happen on that Sunday. Now, what about after Sunday? Well, eight days later, we're gonna see John cover the story of the disciples still in a locked room, but this time with Thomas present. That's next Sunday. And then over the next couple of weeks, we see Jesus meeting with his disciples up north in Galilee, which he had said, he had said through the angel, he will meet his disciples up in Galilee. We'll cover in the yellow there, are seven disciples at the Sea of Galilee. And then we read in Matthew 28 this morning what happens when the disciples meet with Jesus on a mountain in Galilee as well. And then we have day 40 when the disciples uh, meet with Jesus on that last day before they are led out to the Mount of Olives. And he ascends into heaven. So we have all these these things. And sometimes when we have four Gospels, we're trying to piece it together. It's helpful to look at all of this at a glance. Now, the reason I want to come back to the road to Emmaus story is twofold. First of all, historically, it's connected directly to the story we're going to read in John 20. Okay, It, it actually does connect. Even though Luke is the one who covers it in detail, it connects with John 20. But secondly, it provides us with some details that we can ground in history and geography. And those things matter, right? When we're talking about uh, studying historical narrative, if we can ground things in actual locations with geography and history, it makes a difference. So here's how the story goes of the road to Emmaus. In Luke 24, we learn about two men. And, and the, I, I know some people have said, well, these are, these are strong disciples of the Lord. I would call them loose Followers of Jesus. Very loose, based on what we learn about them later on. And we're given the name of one man, Cleopas, but we're not given the name of the other. And that's very interesting. I'll come back to that. And they're walking towards a town called Emmaus, which is seven miles to the west of Jerusalem. And the text says, as they're going along, they are talking to each other and they are lamenting about the situation in Jerusalem, which was what? The whole crucifixion, empty tomb thing they're lamenting about the fact that Jesus is apparently gone now is this a real road yes there's a picture of it you can actually hike this road in Israel today it's actually quite beautiful and uh, in fact you still there is still this is a classic Roman road and there is still Roman pavement from the first century along this road and still Greco-Roman artifacts just laying by the roadside they've just been left there for centuries So it's a beautiful road, and you can hike it even today. So these guys are walking down this road towards Emmaus, and they begin to speak about their disappointment, right? They talk about how they viewed this Jesus of Nazareth as a mighty prophet, and they talked about how they had expected that maybe he would be the one to redeem Israel. But now it's been three days since he was crucified, and yeah, some... Women are claiming that his body is gone. Again, in, in that first century context, ah, it's just women, right? This whole, it's terrible. This whole, ah, it's just a bunch of hysterical women who are talking about the, you know, the tomb being empty. They don't buy it. And so they're acting like this is the end of the whole deal, right? Basically, they've given up hope. So as we would say today, they're, they're just getting out of town and they're on to other interests. Now, as the audience, right, what we're going to see here is this stranger come alongside them and basically say to them, hey, what are you guys talking about? And as the audience, we know who it is, right? It's the risen Christ. But Luke reports, and this is so interesting, right, that they were supernaturally prevented from recognizing him. Now, what is that about, right? It's, it's just so strange. But by the end of the story, we're going to find out what, what God's purpose is, is in that. So the stranger hears what they're talking about, and he rebukes them. He calls them what? Foolish and slow to believe. And then he goes on to reassure them that all these things that had happened in Jerusalem that they are complaining about right now had been foretold in the Hebrew Scriptures from Moses to that day. And he shows them how all these things had to take place and the fact that they have taken place means that the Messiah has come. So imagine being Cleopas and the friend. They're like, well, who's this guy? Man, He knows his Bible, right? And so they're comforted, and they get to Emmaus, and they say to this stranger, why don't you join us for a meal, which he does. And when he had taken bread, see if this sounds familiar, when he had taken bread and blessed it and broke it, what happened? The scales fell from their eyes, essentially. They all of a sudden recognized him that they're sitting at the table with the risen Christ. And then he vanishes from their sight, which, again, is wild, right? Can you imagine being in this moment now, why does the risen Christ do this? Well, a couple of things I think are important to, to point out. First, it seems that these men needed their understanding about who he, who he is to be corrected. They, they only saw him, as so many people did in that time, as this, this prophet, right, who's going to somehow redeem Israel, who's going to lead some historical uprising and, and bring freedom to Israel. They needed to be corrected. And second, this event apparently becomes important later on to the spread of Christianity in and around this area. Here's what we know from some pretty good, pretty reliable historical sources. Eusebius of Caesarea, who is a solid historian, and an early church father named Papias, they tell us that this Cleopas became a devoted follower of Christ, and his son whose name is Simeon, eventually becomes the spiritual head or the pastor of the church in Jerusalem after 70 AD. He becomes the spiritual leader. So Cleopas and his family become an important part of establishing Christianity and building Christianity in this region. And so that's why I assume, I, I can't know this for sure, that's why John mentioned Cleopas's name because he's important in the story and John would have known this at the time that he was writing. Anyway, back to the story then. After recognizing Jesus and then seeing him vanish, what did Cleopas and his friend do? Well, they are completely changed by all this and and you and I would be as well. Their understanding of of Jesus as Messiah has been corrected and their despair turns to hope. What do they do? They're like we're only 7 miles from Jerusalem and they race back to tell the others what they have heard. And here's what Luke writes about this. It says when they got to back to Jerusalem, they found gathered together the 11 and those who were with them and here's what they said. The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. There's that little historical note, has appeared to Simon. We don't know any other detail about it. They, they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. Key verse now, while they were telling these things, he himself, Jesus, stood in their midst. And so that is the, where we pick up in the story of John this morning, the same phraseology that Jesus suddenly appears In their midst. Now, you know I have to do I have to do a map because we're talking anytime we talk about a location, you should know that it's a real place. Okay, so Jerusalem is the blue dot, and Emmaus seven miles to the west into what we call the Shephelah, right? The the Judean foothills of Emmaus in that red dot. Now we know where Emmaus is because, and this is such a funny part of archaeology, what happens when, because says, as a Greek town is, is gone right now. It's, it's no longer there. It's now an Arab-Israeli town. But you can tell with archaeology where locations are in the Bible by, by all kinds of interesting tradition. When people live in an area and say, this is where that happened, and then they pass that on to their kids and grandkids and great-grandkids, that story passes down. This is where it happened, and then guess what happens? Somebody comes along and builds a church there. And you see this all throughout the Holy Land. There's a church there, oftentimes second, third, fourth century, for a reason, because that tradition has been passed on. Well, that is true in Emmaus. It's right now an Arab-Israeli town called Abu Ghosh, and it is dominated by a mosque, but guess what? There is a church there from the Crusader period that the Muslims, out of their gracious hearts, have allowed to stay there. And right now, it's a Roman Catholic monastery. It's a beautiful building. It looks like that you can go visit it today. And if any of you've been to Jerusalem and you've you've seen St. Anne's Church there in the old city, you'll recognize the the architecture. This is back when we built beautiful things. <laughs> this is built in the 11th century this church and it's still there today, built by the Crus- That's how the crusaders built things. And so we'll see some of those in November when we go to Israel. Okay. That may be the longest introduction I've ever done in a sermon. So now, now you've got the whole layout, right, of what's going on. Grab your Bibles and make, if you're not there, let's go to John chapter 20. We're only covering five verses this morning, right? We're setting the stage for next week with our favorite disciple, Doubting Thomas. We'll try to correct the record about Thomas and his doubting. Five verses this morning. And before we read them, I want you to go back in your minds just for a second and recall some of the things that Jesus told his disciples in the upper room when they were celebrating Passover. Remember this massive section of John's gospel from chapter 13 on, right? This massive section, some of the things that Jesus promised. Remember, he promised that when I go away, I will do what? I will send the spirit, right? One who is like me to be with them, right? He said, I won't leave you as orphans. I will send the spirit. He talked about peace that he would leave with them. My peace I give to you, he says. He said, make sure that you don't let your hearts be troubled and fearful. And perhaps most importantly, this promise, listen to this now, in a little while, he said, you will no longer see me. And again, in a little while, you will see me. Now, do you think they remembered that? (laughs) As they're about to see him again? But Jesus had given them all these promises in the upper room. So now we come to verse 19 in our our text for this morning. It says, so when it was evening on that day, what day? The first day of the week. Now that connects all the way back to verse 1 in chapter 20, right? Where it says on the first day of the week is when Mary Magdalene went out to the tomb. Very early in the morning. So this scene is the same day. That first Sunday of the resurrection. But now it's evening time. And it says, and when the doors were shut, that's a nice way of saying the doors were locked down. Okay? The doors were shut where the disciples were for what? For fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst. That's the same phrase that Luke uses in chapter 24. He came and stood in their midst, right? And what did he say to them? Peace be with you. Wow. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side, right, where the spear had gone. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord, when they recognized it. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. So that's why I stopped there, because there's some pretty controversial things in those last two verses, which we'll cover as we go along. So, so again, get the scene here. The disciples are huddled together, all in this one place. We find out it's not just the, the 11 minus Thomas, but there's others there as well, according to Luke. But they're huddled together. What are they doing? They're trying to lay low, right? Right? The lights are out. The the shades are pulled. They're, They're trying not to make any noises. Why? Because they're afraid. They're afraid of the Jewish authorities, and rightly so. These men had just found a way to convince the Romans to crucify their leader, and they were well aware that the chief priests knew who they were and that the chief priests would still see them as a threat as long as they were still alive. And by this time, Matthew tells us, already the chief priests had begun to circulate a false story that the disciples had gone to the tomb and stolen the body. So they're nervous. And try to imagine, you're sitting there with your friends in the dark, you're, you're staying quiet, and you're wondering at any moment, is the temple guard going to break down the door and arrest you and carry you off just as they did with Jesus? So every little sound you hear outside causes fear and anxiety. And I want you to see this clearly. This is so important. See how trapped these men are in this moment. Trapped in this room, trapped in their fear, trapped in their doubts. And the reason that's important is later on, we're going to see a remarkable change in these men. After they see the risen Lord, after the spirit comes upon them at Pentecost, all that fear goes away. It's quite remarkable. They're going to go out and preach the gospel so bold, so boldly, they're even going to do it in the temple courts right in front of the men that they're afraid of on this night. Right, right in front of them, in the temple courts. They're going to get arrested, and they're going to get whipped and beaten, and they don't care because they've seen the risen Lord, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. That change is one of the great proofs that Jesus did come back to life because there's just no way to explain such a radical transformation among human beings none of us would go from terrified to that type of boldness unless something really big had happened there's just no other way to explain it because if the resurrection had been a hoax trust me you know what these guys would have done they'd have slipped away gone back to what doing what they were doing before and you never would have heard from them again because nobody wants to die for a fabrication so all the way the disciples act from this day to that day is a huge proof. Now, continuing in verse 19, the doors are locked, the men are in fear, and Jesus comes and stands in their midst. So he knows where they're holed up, and he suddenly appears among them. Doesn't knock at the door. Hello. Right? Doesn't knock at the door. Right? He doesn't even open the door. He's just there. Be amazed at that, Right? The best way to describe it is he simply materialized in that location. Some have said that he would have had to rearrange the molecules in his resurrected body to be able to pass through a solid wall to get into this room. And I know that sounds pretty wild, but remember, that's also consistent with the evidence that Peter and John found in the empty tomb. Do you remember? The same type of thing. They couldn't understand it at the time, but they looked at the grave cloths and the spices that Jesus had been wrapped in a hundred pounds of it and it just dropped to the ground in this tomb laying there in pristine condition as if the body passed right through it the same type of thing right they didn't get it at this time but now something similar has happened Jesus is able to walk right through physical barriers amazing so what do we say about this right do we believe in miracles it's a good time do we believe in miracles you ought to test yourself in this. Do we believe that the resurrected Christ can do this? Well, we can't say a whole lot about the whole, I don't know, the, is it the physics behind it, or whatever, whatever's, we, we're not given a lot of details about how this actually happens. We can draw some reasonable conclusions, but when we look at a story like this, we look at any miracle in the Bible, we've gotta be careful not to speculate too much because for finite people, this is sort of out of our frame of reference. It becomes an issue of trust, doesn't it? But I think we can say this, obviously, that resurrection bodies are not subject to the same earthly limitations that we have right now. That seems obvious, right? Because Jesus seems to be able to materialize and then dematerialize at will, to appear and disappear. It happened in the tomb, it happened at Emmaus, and now it happens in this locked room. What's interesting is, is although his body isn't subject to physical barriers, his body itself is still physical. That's wild. It's mind-blowing. Verse 20 says he proved it. He showed them both his hands and his side, right? So that they could confirm, hey, guys, look, I'm corporeal, meaning I actually have a physical body here. Even though it would have looked different, I mean, he doesn't look like the same guy that was hanging on the cross, sweating and bleeding all over the place, right? He still has scars, but he doesn't look the exact same. But it's his body, and it's real, and it's physical. Luke quotes Jesus as saying this, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit that does, does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have, actual flesh and bone." It's wild. So right away, Jesus wants them to know, I'm not a ghost. I'm not some type of apparition. You're not having a mass hallucination. Come and touch. Come and see. And then Luke says he goes a step further. He's like, by the way, do you have anything to eat? Just in case you want to see how physical I am. And they go, "Um, yeah, we got some broiled fish back here. He's like, great. And he eats in front of them. I mean, imagine your mind, right? You're like, what is happening right now? crazy. So Jesus is physical, but he's not limited by that physicality. Doesn't seem to be any place that he can't be instantly. doesn't seem to be any limit to his ability to transcend everything we know about the earthly laws of nature and physics. Now, whenever you hear about this, does it make you think about your own resurrected body? This is where it gets kind of fun. Well, wait, is that, am I going to be able to appear and disappear? Do I get the cloak of, you know? Harry Potter reference. Just threw that in. I mean, does it, oh, come on. Tell me you haven't thought about this. Do I get to like zip around like this? Does that happen to me? we get to sort of wonder and dream. So let me give you a couple of verses. The same apostle John writes this in his first epistle. He says, beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So let that sort of tweak your thinking. And then Paul says this to the Philippian believers, our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Hmm. And then when he wrote to the Corinthians, he talked about these bodies that we'll have someday, how they'll be imperishable and glorious and powerful, that they'll be fit for the new creation that is coming someday. It's pretty exciting stuff. Now, don't get confused, we don't get brand new bodies. I know that might be disappointing to some of us, right? We don't get brand new bodies in the sense that it's a different body than the one that we had on earth. Our bodies are part of our identity, it's part of who we are, but they will be transformed. These bodies will be transformed, powerfully and gloriously transformed, but they'll still be our particular bodies. We know that because of the pattern that we have in Christ, that is still his body. Although it's been transformed and glorified, it's still his, and that's why he still, he'll have those scars for all eternity, right? So we can see the sacrifice that he's made. Okay, so you can dream about that. I think it's interesting. I don't think we can speculate beyond that, but it's very, very interesting to think about. Let's back up to the last phrase in verse 19 and see what Jesus chooses to say to these men when he suddenly appears in their midst, right? What would you say? By the way, he could have come with a rebuke. He could have come and said, hey guys, raise your hand if you deserted me when I got arrested. Oh, all of you? Oh, okay, thanks for that. Right. He could have come with a rebuke like, wow, guys, I mean, he knew it was going to happen or he actually prophesied it was going to happen. But, yeah, he could have come with a rebuke. But what does he say? He says, he says, peace, he says peace. It's just one of the one of the beautiful things we glean from these post resurrection appearances that Jesus seeks out his people. He seeks out his people who are afraid and doubting. And he brings with him this this concept of shalom. Right. Peace. This is what he had promised them in the upper room. Remember these words? My peace I give to you, he said. This is only a few days before, right? My peace I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world, by contrast, you have tribulation. But take courage, I've overcome the world. So you can have peace. Now, imagine you're one of these guys, not only... Uh, have you suddenly seen Jesus appear? But like Mary Magdalene, who rejoiced at hearing his voice, now you hear his voice and he says to you, peace, everything's well. Everything is well. Imagine that. And verse 20 says, after showing them his hands and his side, John says the disciples rejoiced. That may be one of the great understatements in the Bible, right? Because you have to imagine the joy at this moment. They have gone from the lowest of the lows your hope gone everything that you you had invested in and thought your future was gone Jesus taken away from you it must have seemed like like we talked about two weeks ago what now and now suddenly here he is he just appears in your midst it's like a dream come true this is this is too good to be true So there's rejoicing. And Jesus repeats himself in verse 21, peace be with you. And I'm thinking, why does he say it a second time? Can I just guess? Because that room has broken into bedlam. People are rejoicing. There's shouting. I picture, they're hugging each other. He's back. Jesus is here with us, right? Questions had to be flying around the room. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 peace. Calm down. (laughs) Uh, Again, I I, I know I'm speculating here but he says it a second time because, look, sometimes you read the Bible and we are like, this just seems like a normal, just a flat, oh, Jesus is back. Rejoice. No. No, no, no. Put the emotion in it. Are you kidding me? What would you feel when suddenly your hope is right there? Physically, he's alive. I, I just think he's like, guys, calm down. Look, I know this is exciting, but pull yourselves together. We have some important things to talk about. And then he goes on to share. And to me, this is the big idea of the passage. What is Jesus now going to instruct these guys to do, right? Because, hey, peace, fantastic. Everything is well. We're going to be okay. Now what? Lord, what do you want us to do? Well, he's going to tell us. Peace be with you, he says. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. So this is the first post-resurrection instruction from the Lord. That makes it important. What is his most urgent concern? Here's a hint, and we'll come back to this later. It has nothing to do with the many, many lesser things that modern Christians like you and I tend to focus on. All the things that distract us, it has nothing to do with all the lesser things. It's a much bigger thing. It's the number one thing that Jesus talks about he immediately commissions his followers with this singular purpose. Just as the Father sent me into the world to proclaim the truth about sin and about salvation, so I am sending you all out into the world in the same way with the very same message. That's what he's interested in. Now, catch this. Back in chapter 15, he had said to these same men, I've chosen you out of the world, but now he says, all right, chosen you out of the world, now I'm sending you back into the world. And that's an important concept. He's like, you no longer belong to the world. You belong to me, but now I'm commissioning you to go back into the world to seek out the lost as my ambassadors. I'm going away. You're my ambassadors. The spirit will come to empower you, but it's going to happen through you, my disciples. Hmm. So this is John's equivalent of what we call the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, Gabe read it to us as our call to worship. This is the equivalent of that, right? The, what we read in Matthew 28, what Gabe read in Matthew 28, that happens later at one of the appearances up in Galilee. But here in this locked room in Jerusalem on this night, it's very simple. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. Now, why did the Father send the Son of the world? If we can figure out why and how and what the Father sent the Son of the world for, then guess what? We can go, oh, well, good. Now we know what our priority should be because we're being sent out in the same way. So ask yourself some questions. Did the father send the son into the world to fix all of society's problems? Right, to address all the cultural issues of fixing the Roman Empire? No. Did the father send the son into the world to improve all of his followers' economic condition, to make them more prosperous and comfortable? No. Did the Father send the Son into the world to meet every single person's wants and needs in their local church? No. But boy, we get hung up on all those things, don't we? The Son's mission was to reveal the Father to all those who had ears to hear, to reveal the Father to all those whom the Father had given to the Son to save. And Jesus stuck to that singular mission. All kinds of things came across his his radar, didn't get distracted. That was the core mission. He came to do the Father's will. He came to speak the Father's words. And he came to perform the works the Father had given him, including dying on the cross as a substitute for sinners. Singularly focused on that mission. And now, friends, just as the Father sent Jesus on that mission, Jesus says, not just to those guys in that room that night, but to us as well today, I'm sending you out to do the same to declare to the world, this is who God is, this is what Jesus has done, and this is how your debt for sin can be ransomed. This is how you can live forever. That's our mission. That's the core of our mission. I know there's a lot of other things we can do, and yes, there's a lot of other things we should be doing based on other scriptural commands. I'm not I'm not denigrating any of the other things we're called to do in scripture. All I'm saying is we should never lose sight of this core mission that was handed down by Jesus to the disciples and by extension to us. We cannot lose sight of that. Amen? Amen. Now, even that truth about our mission raises question, and here's the first one. How, how can you and I possibly go out and, and be on mission like Jesus? Because he was God in the flesh and we're obviously not. And he was perfect and sinless, and we're obviously not. He walked in perfect, unbroken, intimate fellowship with the Father, and we don't come close to that. This is why Paul asked the question in his day who is adequate for such things? And the answer is not one of us, because we all fall short of the glory of God, right? So we need to be empowered by God to carry out the mission. We're being sent out. Now, if God had sent us out on this mission and said, but I don't have any extra power for you, we're in trouble because we can't do it. In fact, we can't do anything apart from Christ. So we're going to need to be empowered. Remember how at the end of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus concludes with this, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And you're like, well, wait, hold on. You're going away. How's that possible? Well, it's possible through the Spirit. As I go away, I'm sending the Spirit. And so through the Holy Spirit, Jesus is always with us. And these Disciples are going to need that. If they're going to carry out this mission, imagine the breadth and size of this mission. From Jerusalem, we're going to go out to the ends of the earth. Right? This is talking about big vision. To the ends of the earth with this message. They're going to need supernatural empowerment. Now, let's see what verse 22 has to say about this. This is where it gets interesting. As the Father sent me, I also send you, verse 22, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Huh? That's a big huh moment, right? So listen, scholars have been trying to figure this one out for centuries. There's a lot of opinions out there. I'm going to try to cut through all of them this morning and give you a couple of possibilities. But this is a really hard statement. First, let me say this is obviously not the same feeling of the Holy Spirit that comes at Pentecost in Acts chapter two. Although there are some out there who say, well, this is just John's version of that. I think that's that's nonsense. Besides the obvious practical differences between those two events, the best evidence that what we just read is not the same as Pentecost is what comes next, or better yet, what doesn't come next. Because John doesn't describe the disciples being transformed in any way after Jesus breathes on them. In fact, they continue to hide. Eight days later, they're still hiding. We're gonna find that out next week. They're still hiding. They don't go out after this breathing on them and start preaching the gospel boldly. In fact, what we're gonna find out in a couple weeks is that a bunch of them just go back to fishing. We find them in Galilee and they're on their boat fishing again. So, so this is not the same feeling as Pentecost. It can't be. If if it were, I gotta say the results are pretty disappointing. So here's a better explanation, in my, in, um, in my opinion. What Jesus is doing here in this breathing is symbolic in nature. It's symbolic. It was a living parable intended to communicate a truth that would later come to pass at Pentecost. And, it, and the best way to see this is similar to Jesus' washing of the feet up in the upper room. Okay? It's, Jesus wasn't saying, hey, guys, every single day you need to wash each other's feet. It was a living parable that was given to the disciples to say in the future you need to serve each other sacrificially in this way. And by the way, you'll understand this more after I'm gone. This is very similar here, right? Many would say that what Jesus is doing here, this breathing is symbolic in that same way. Now, if that's true, what does it symbolize? Well, one of two things are possible. First of all, Jesus may have been symbolizing the birth of a new chapter in the life of redeemed humanity. Now think about this for a second. When you hear the word breathed, a couple things might come to mind. I'll give you two of them in Scripture. Genesis 2. What happens in Genesis 2? God breathes the breath of life into Adam and he becomes the living soul. He brings mankind to life. The other one comes from Ezekiel 37 and what we call the Valley of Dry Bones, right? Where Israel is pictured as this corpse that has no life in it until God says to the prophet, breathe, breathe, and bring the bones to life. So, Is there a connection here? Some scholars would say that this is the parable, the animation of a new humanity, all who are born again and who are about to receive this life-giving breath of God, the Holy Spirit, in Acts chapter 2. That's one possibility. So Jesus is giving a sort of a symbolic way of saying this is coming, this new, born-again, Holy Spirit-filled humanity the second possibility also agrees that Genesis 2 is in sight, but that this breathing was more of a symbol of the commissioning that's taking place on this particular night. In other words, Jesus is symbolically breathing new life into these disciples in order to mark them out as apostles. And there's a distinction there. What's an apostle? One who is sent out with authority. And this is a, a symbolic of that anticipating the power of the spirit that's going to come upon them and their subsequent going out in power as apostles. So those are possibilities. I'm just going to be honest with you. This is a really hard verse. And sometimes you come to verses like this and you're like, I don't know. But we'll let the Lord <laughs> we'll let the Lord determine that. He knows why he did it and how he he knows all those details and sometimes we can just step back and go, it's a little bit of a mystery. Are you okay with that? Hold on, mystery. It's okay. Now, then we come to verse 23, and some people see this one as equally controversial, although I don't think so. I think it's very explainable, so let's look at this. By the way, this brings us really, I'm just gonna put this on the screen. This really brings us to the big idea of the passage. The big idea of this passage is the mission. First of all, the statement of the mission. I'm sending you out. Second of all, the power that has to come for this mission, right, the coming spirit, And now what we're going to see in verse 23, one of the things that's required of this mission, and it's a declaration regarding sin. And I'm just going to warn you, we don't like this verse so much. So hold on, let's read it again. Verse 23, Jesus says to these men, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they've been retained. Now this is is every Roman Catholic's favorite verse. Trust me. They'll, they'll bring it up I don't have time for that maybe that'll be an unshakable write that down maybe an unshakable episode but they love this verse but this is clearly not not establishing some priesthood here that's for another day but I, I get you read this verse you're like wait hold on a second only God forgives sins so what is this authority do we get to go around saying oh your sins are forgiven and yours aren't ha ha <laughs> right so what's going on here well, understand, Jesus is not giving his disciples some kind of arbitrary authority here. He's not saying, look, you guys go out and make up a list of what you think is acceptable and what isn't, then you can run around pointing fingers at people. That's not what's going on here. This authority in context is directly tied to their receiving of the Holy Spirit because he's the one who's gonna guide them into all truth so that they can truthfully declare whether a person has been forgiven or not. So the core of our mission as Christians, this is is important, guys. The core of our mission as Christians and together as the church is to address the issue of human sin. I know a lot of churches, it's not popular to do that. Like, I try not to talk too much about sin. That is a part of our core mission to talk about human sin. Why? Because unforgiven sin is the greatest threat to mankind. It's an eternal threat to mankind. Sin that's not dealt with. So how can we not deal with it if we know that that is true? When we're talking to people, lost people in our community, how can we not talk about sin and about forgiveness? We have to. So you and I are to help people whom God brings into our lives discover God's mercy and to help them deal with their sin, to help them find forgiveness of sin and eternal life. And as ambassadors, people who speak on behalf of Jesus, with that spirit-filled authority, we're to tell people who repent and trust in him, your sins are forgiven. We recognize that in you. In fact, we do this as a membership at Oak Hill, right? We listen to the testimony of folks and we say, to the best of our ability, we believe you're born again. We declare, your sins are forgiven. And if we come across people who harden their hearts and they reject God's mercy... We can also say with great sorrow in our hearts, you remain in your sin. That's part of our mandate as believers, as the church, is to make these declarations. I know this is hard. We don't like this in the Western world. But this is what Jesus said on this night. That's what he's commissioning on this night. I'm sending you out into the world with the power of the Holy Spirit and one of the things you must do as you speak to people about what is true is you need to declare your sins are forgiven, yours are not. Why? So that they know. Is that not important? Is not that the most important thing a person can know is whether my sins are forgiven or not. Well, guess what? God has told the church to go out and assist in that process. Listen, to declare what is already true in heaven. That's part of our job. To declare on earth what we believe to be true in heaven. Based on what? Based on the written word of God. Based on the Holy Spirit's guidance. We're to declare these things. Now, I know that may sound strange, but it shouldn't because twice in Matthew's gospel, this very same concept comes up in Matthew 16 and 18, and it's referred to as binding and loosing. Raise your hands if you've heard the term, binding and loosing. Good. In Matthew 16, Jesus says to his guys, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Well, what do keys do? They open and they close things. They bind things and they unbind things. And then that same language comes up in Matthew 18, only this time in the context of church discipline. Because part of the church's job is to define who is a genuine Christian and who is falsely professing to know Christ, and if so, they need to be removed from the fellowship. This is heavy, right? It's part of our job. Now, Do we get to forgive people? No. Do we get to bind people in their sin? No. But we're called to declare what God says about people based on, again, what? The written word of God and the Holy Spirit's guidance. Now, obviously, there's the possibility of abuse in this. And this is what we're all concerned about these days because it's true. Sometimes men who are not qualified and have no authority to speak for God do so falsely. We know that that happens. We see it all over biblical history. There were false prophets in the Old Testament where God said, that guy doesn't speak for me, even though he was flapping his gums. He doesn't speak for me. And there's times in the New Testament where we're warned that there's gonna be false teachers who rise up and they will flap their gums, but they don't speak for God. And that's why God has promised such severe judgment on men like that and why the bar for leadership is so high because this is such an important thing. But what the Lord is talking about here in John 20 is the responsibility of a true church that is faithful to the word of God, an authoritative church that can righteously declare what is true in heaven concerning sin. And it happens in a number of ways. These things aren't, these things aren't always in formal settings. Sometimes it's in a personal conversation as, as people get to know each other. Sometimes in... The sanchez's can tell you this in discipleship or counseling settings right where you make a statement about forgiveness of sins or not forgiveness of sins about being born again or not being born again sometimes it happens actually it happens every week through the word of god through the preaching of the word right sometimes people become aware maybe i'm not saved and we need to have a conversation about that and of course through church discipline friends i I want want to tell you, this is a good thing, not a bad thing. I know it can be kind of scary, but it's a good thing. Because for anybody who cares about his or her soul and his or her status before God, forgiven or not forgiven, they ought to want to know what is true. And the church ought to have qualified members that can come around and say, well, let me help you in this process to declare what is true about you and whether your sins are forgiven or not. We should rejoice in that, right? Frankly, there's nothing more important, I said it already, nothing more important than for us to know whether our sins are forgiven or not. And so we can thank God for the fact that the church has been called to assist in that that mission. Again, not declaring ourselves, we don't have that power, but declaring what God says is already true in the heavenly realms. That's a big deal. Go back and read Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, more about this binding and loosing concept, because... In my opinion, we've lost this in the modern-day church. We're too afraid of it because of all the abuse that's happened through the centuries. And, and, guys, we shouldn't hold to things because people have behaved badly in the past, right? And So we don't want to talk about that anymore. No, if the Bible talks about it, we need to declare it. Amen? Okay, got to wrap up. How do I wrap all this up? Well, I said earlier the big idea of this passage is this mission that God has given us, Right? On the first evening of the resurrection, I mean, Jesus doesn't waste any time, right? Here it is. As the Father has sent me into the world, I'm sending you. But I just want to challenge you how often do we forget this? How often do we forget our commissioning as disciples? How often do we let less important things distract us from this core purpose that we have as believers? We get wound up over so many things, even in the church, right? We plod through life in the church week to week, month to month, year to year. We're busy with this. We're busy with that. Sometimes we're serving. Sometimes we're grumbling, right? Sometimes we're, we're focused and sometimes we're checked out. And all the while we're plodding through this life, but we've forgotten the mission, the core mission that God has given us. So listen, there's a lot of great things that we can do as believers in the church. And at Oak Hill, we do a whole bunch of them really well. And I praise God for this. We fellowship so well. And we worship well. And we study the word well. And we serve each other so well. All of this sanctifying activity that's happening at Oak Hill is pleasing in God's sight. And it's awesome to watch. But here's the thing. All of that sanctifying activity has to point us somewhere. All of that activity in the church has to point aim our lives in some direction. And that's the core purpose. It's supposed to be pointing us towards the display of a transformed life so that we can take it outside of these walls out there into the world. Let them see your transformed life. It's great that we show it to each other. We should. But let them see it. It's all aiming out there. So let's keep fellowshipping and worshipping and studying the word and serving each other. All those things are good and important but let them have their intended purpose, not to just stay here, but to go out there. So sanctifying, this, is, this has always been the purpose of Oak Hill, sanctifying activity here within that leads to a proclaiming of truth out there in the world so that others might be saved. Remember, remember the word Jesus came with, peace. Aren't you glad that, that as we sit here this morning, we have peace with God? Never take that for granted. We have peace with Almighty God, that our sins are forgiven. There are no sweeter words to hear than that. We can praise God for it, but we can't just hold on to it like this, right? We've got to go out there and tell others about that very same peace. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Lord, we are grateful for just a, just a, a brief time of stillness just us and, and you and just being aware of our hearts and the way that your spirit speaks to us and communicates with us. And and so Lord, I pray that we'll be sensitive to that this morning. Anytime we come out of studying the word, Lord, it is so good, so good for us to reflect and to think, oh, Lord, what do I need to repent of? What what do I need to change my thinking about? And so, Lord, I thank you this morning that you've showed us this beautiful truth about the mission that you've given us, and it was right after your resurrection on that very day that you said, I'm sending you out. And Lord, if we have forgotten about that core purpose, if we have laid it to the side, we've acted like, well, professionals will do that or others will do it, I pray that we will see this rightly this morning and we'll come back to this and say, wow, Lord, sanctify me so that I can go out there and show people what you look like, the work that you can do in a sinner like me. Change me, Lord, so that I can help others be changed. Thank you for that message this morning, Lord, as we continue to worship you now with our lips. I pray that you be glorified in our hearts. Be with us now. Amen.